The Weekend Out, episode 269. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Elbertelli, the host of The Weekend Out, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Before we get started, I'd like to quickly thank my friend Susie for liking The Weekend Out Facebook page. Don't know if she wants her last name broadcast on the air. Is this technically the air? Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Thanks, Susie. And just to let you know up front, this is going to be yet another unscripted episode. I don't really have any excuse this week. I've actually been experiencing a good amount of downtime because of the holidays. But to be honest, I've been spending most of it sleeping. And speaking of the holidays, I think this is the first year that I haven't done a Weekend Out Christmas special. I did release a couple of Weekend Out replay episodes I re-released the uh, the Krampus special and the very first Weekend Out Christmas special. I think it's either called A Brief History of Christmas or Christmas A Brief History. But no original Christmas content this year. My apologies. I did have a couple of ideas for what I wanted to do, but I was having trouble deciding. And then before you know it, the way time flies, Christmas was here and gone. One idea, and it's something I always wanted to do, was I was just going to chill and play some of my favorite Christmas music and talk about the history behind some of the songs. But I didn't know if that would be everyone's cup of tea. And on top of it, I would definitely have to worry about copyright concerns when publishing the YouTube version. And another idea I had was to do a special that focused on trying to tease out the truth of why December 25th was chosen as the date for Christmas. In the very first Weekend Out Christmas special, which I had just been alluding to, I believe I go into uh, how December 25th was the time of the winter solstice on the Roman calendar, and it also came to be associated with the gods Mithra or Mithras, a Persian deity adopted into Roman culture, and also the Roman sun god Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. And so in this sense, it would have been one example of many of the assimilation or Christianization of an existing pagan tradition. I should note that even though Sol Invictus and Mithra or Mithras were two different deities, I believe that in certain circumstances there was a kind of conflation of the two or that um, they were equated with one another and that Sol Invictus uh, may even have played a part in Mithraic mysteries, etc. So it becomes kind of hard to try to tease these two deities apart as well. And then there's a kind of competing theory. I think it's referred to as the calculation hypothesis, which posits that there was an earlier holiday associated with the incarnation of Christ, uh, which took place on March 25th. Then uh, you add nine months to that. Uh, you know, the human gestation period, and you get December 25th. It gets very confusing once again, and I really want to do a good and thorough job if I was going to do a special on this topic. And so once again, I just didn't think that I would have enough time to get it out before Christmas. Huh, maybe if I wasn't sleeping so much. But anyway, I guess I might as well move on to uh, some news stories. So here's a tweet from Donald Trump that I posted to the Weekend Out Facebook page, and it's uh, dated Christmas Eve. <sighs> so it says, 
People are proud to be saying Merry Christmas again. I am proud to have led the charge against the assault of our cherished and beautiful phrase. Merry Christmas, one, two, three, four, five exclamation marks. Okay, so this has always seemed kind of weird to me. It's strange how certain ideas get inside Donald Trump's head and just run amok. Like, remember the whole birtherism thing? And that's where... You know, I used to like Donald Trump back in the day as kind of like just a source of entertainment, as this kind of blowhard you'd see on TV, or, you know, I even enjoyed The Celebrity Apprentice to some degree, even though in general I've never really been into reality television. And I always pictured him or thought of him as being relatively harmless. And it wasn't until he started uh, leading the charge and carrying the banner for the birtherism movement that I realized the kind of dark side to this guy or how dangerous he could be in a sense. And the way he just kind of grabbed the birtherism ball and ran with it, I see kind of a similar thing here. It's like he watched Bill O'Reilly talk about the war on Christmas one too many times and then just, you know, the idea got stuck in his head or whatever. Now, I'm essentially an atheist. I like to refer to myself as an agnostic atheist, technically. And yet, I look forward to Christmas every year. As I was saying earlier, you know, I have a love of Christmas music. I say Merry Christmas to people without hesitation. They say Merry Christmas to me. Uh, I, I go into stores at Christmas time, and I see all the trappings of Christmas, you know, everywhere. So, I, I mean, I don't really get what the problem is. I, I don't know what weird bubble he's living in, but as a working-class person living in the real world, I've, I've never seen some crackdown on the saying of Merry Christmas. I've never experienced that. So, very strange. And who knows, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's certain schools or colleges where there's such a politically correct atmosphere or desire for inclusion that maybe instead of Merry Christmas, there's Happy Holidays, you know? And even then, as long as I've been alive, I remember people just kind of interchangeably, you know, either saying Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas Happy Holidays, because it includes other things like Hanukkah and New Year's, etc. Um, so I don't necessarily see what's wrong with saying Happy Holidays either. In fact, uh, I was recently just wishing a bunch of different friends Merry Christmas, you know, via Facebook Messenger. Some of my, you know, my really close friends. And one Jewish friend I have, I said to her, Happy Holidays, just in case. You know what I mean? And uh, without missing a beat, she replied right away, Merry Christmas, Phil. You know? So, once again, I don't really see this this dreaded crackdown on uh, Christmas. And so, friend and listener John Dalton, via the Weekend Out Facebook page, uh, sent a link to me. And it's from the Washington Post. And it's entitled... When Trump forbade a Christmas tree and other forgotten stories from the war on Christmas. And it looks like it's by Avi Selk, I think it is. And it's dated Christmas. 
It's Christmas and President Trump is celebrating by repeatedly typing Merry Christmas and by taking credit for having led the charge against the assault of our cherished and beautiful phrase. Ah, the proverbial war on Christmas, in which the holiday is under attack, with even the quote-unquote Merry Christmas greeting frowned upon in the faithful fight to defend it. And first among them, Trump. But is Trump really the hero here? Or was he always more of a bystander or worse? It depends on how many Christmases we look at. So here it says Christmas 1981, no trees allowed. In the 1980s, his political rise still decades away, Trump bought an old apartment building across the street from Central Park in New York that he hoped to tear down and rebuild as a high-rent tower. When the longtime residents wouldn't move out voluntarily, the New York Times wrote Trump hired a management company that essentially ran the building into the ground. And while Trump threatened to house homeless people in the building, the management company used creative tactics that included covering windows in tin and forbidding Christmas decorations in the lobby. It was probably the least of the residents' concerns, but Trump allowed no Christmas trees in 1981, the Times wrote, nor in the next year. So then it jumps to 1983, and it's dealing with the same situation. After two years of what New York Magazine called a cold war between Trump's tenants and his managers, the Central Park building was a mess of hostility and broken appliances. A tenant representative finally wrote to Trump's management company in 1983, asking for permission to at least put up a Christmas tree. Many of the residents are very old and have nowhere to go, she wrote, the magazine reported. This will be their only chance to share in the holiday spirit. The company wrote back that in light of the tenants' complaints, it was, quote-unquote, quite difficult for the management to feel that a relaxed holiday season spirit relationship exists at the building. Moreover, a Christmas tree might raise religious liberty concerns, it said. But the company offered to allow the tree with some conditions. The company would be held, quote-unquote, blameless in any claims related to the Christmas tree, and all decorations had to comply with government regulations. It says there's differing accounts, one in which the tenant leader signed the contract and the Christmas tree went up and the holiday spirit was saved. But the Times wrote that maintenance workers misunderstood the Christmas negotiations and put up a contractless tree without permission and that Trump's manager fumed but could do nothing. It says in 1999, Trump had erected at Trump Tower what was dubbed the Trump Tower Millennium Holiday Tree. <laughs> Then it has a series of tweets. I think this first one's from 2009. These are from Donald Trump. From Donald Trump wishing everyone a wonderful holiday and happy, healthy, prosperous New Year. Let's think like champions in 2010. Then in 2010, wishing everyone a very happy holiday season. 2011, my new book, hashtag time to get tough, is the best present of the holiday season. A great gift for anyone who cares about this country. Then uh, 2012, the Miss Universe contestants glow with elegance during the Trump holiday party. 2013, young entrepreneurs, the holiday season is here, but that is no excuse not to stay on top of your business prospects. Focus. And, and those were all from Trump. Says, well, Trump continued wishing happy holidays for years. His first use of the word Christmas on Twitter appears to have been in 2011, shortly after he expressed interest in running for president. Trump suggested buying his new book as a Christmas present that December, and a few days later he complained that President Barack Obama issued a statement for Kwanzaa but failed to issue one for Christmas. And this is from the guy who was 
simply saying, you know, happy holidays or whatever, up until 2011 or whatever it was, or when he was beginning to show interest in running for the presidency. The Associated Press noted this was a false assertion. Obama had, like presidents before him, acknowledged the African Heritage Festival of Kwanzaa, but he had also wished Americans Merry Christmas, as he did every year during his presidency. It is true that Obama changed the annual White House Christmas card to a more generic holiday card, but he publicly celebrated Christmas so frequently that many people have made video montages of him recognizing the holiday. These would occasionally be shown to Trump in the 2015-16 election when he truly became a Christmas warrior. Shortly after announcing his candidacy for president in 2015, Trump went to the Values Voter Summit, hoisted a Bible and said, I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, I'm Christian, I love people. As the Washington Post wrote at the time, he had some trouble convincing conservative Christian voters of this, so he elaborated in his speech. I love Christmas, he said. You go to the stores now and it doesn't say Christmas. It says Happy Holidays all over. I say, where's Christmas? I tell my wife, don't go to those stores. I want to see Christmas. Other people can have their holidays, but Christmas is Christmas. I want to see Merry Christmas. Remember the expression Merry Christmas? You don't see it. You're going to see it if I'm elected. I was going to make a wise-ass joke about seeing an expression, but, uh, you know, I guess, you know, it could be referring to decorations and things like that. And I don't know, you know, what stores he's shopping at, but <laughs> being someone who, you know, has to, like, do what they can to make ends meet, you know, I, I go to, like, stop and shop, I go to CVS, you know, places like that. And usually, I think, usually somewhere near the end of October, you start seeing the Christmas candy come out, all the Christmas decorations. I think I bought my Christmas bags and wrapping paper from Stop and Shop this year. And some of the things I bought say Merry Christmas right on them. And, you know, have depictions of Christmas trees, uh, Santa Claus, etc., etc. So, I don't know. He strikes me as kind of a deluded opportunist. Uh, how much he believes his own BS, I don't know. And Trump supporters might be tempted to argue that, well, that first story is from the 1980s and his position or his view on the matter may evolved or changed over time. And there might be some degree of that, maybe. Uh, but I think the irony still holds. Okay, so I guess I'll do another story. And I think uh, I was kind of tipped off to this story by uh, listening to Kyle Kalinske on Secular Talk. He had mentioned something about uh, the Swedish church and something about uh, the way they refer to the gender of God or lack thereof. And so this article is from PBS, and I actually posted it to the Weekend Out Facebook page, and I was making fun of the way uh, there was this glaring grammatical error or typo in the, in the um, title of the story. It says, Is God Is Beyond Gender? Uh, Swedish Church Challenges Traditional Perception. But it looks like they changed it. Now says, is God beyond gender? By joke, I was like, not so snooty now, PBS. <clears throat> Being all uppity while they're always asking for money and pimping out their tote bags. <laughs> I don't know why I'm beating up on PBS. <laughs> Maybe I meant shilling tote bags, not pimping. Pimp my tote bag sounds like an MTV show. But uh, anyway, so this story is from December 26th. 
According to the Church of Sweden, it's preferable not to refer to God as quote-unquote he. The official decision to use gender-neutral language will be a change in the way that many Swedish churchgoers worship, and one that has divided the country. Special correspondent Malcolm Brabant reports on the debate and how it may echo in other countries. See. As churchgoers in Sweden celebrate this Christmas season, they are also preparing for a major change in the way they worship. The Church of Sweden recently decided its clergy should stop describing God in masculine terms, such as he, and instead use more gender-neutral language. This change has divided the country, yeah, yeah, yeah. The weight of history resonates deeply at Lund Cathedral. Its foundations were laid 900 years ago, making it almost half the age of Christianity itself. Now the God worshipped here and in thousands of other Lutheran churches is getting a 21st century Swedish upgrade. And it's quoting a chaplain here. It looks like, and I'm horrible with all names. Let's just say all names, not just Scandinavian names. First name Lena, so a girl, I guess. Swadstrand. I, I don't know. S-J-O-S-T-R-A-N-D. Where's uh, Tim Danaher when you need him? We, ha we have a consciousness about gender questions, which is stronger in our time than it has been before. And of course, this has had an impact on theology and on church life and pastoral reflection. And I think that is, we should have that. Okay, so this looks like an interview between um, that Malcolm Brabant and, uh, or is it Brabant? I don't know, and this chaplain. So here are the interviewers saying, in six months' time, the words in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit used at the start of the service will disappear from churches which prefer to adopt the gender-neutral phrase of in God, the Trinity's name. Then she replies, I don't think that God is a big mother or father sitting up in the sky. I don't think that makes sense. God is something much bigger than this. And then the interviewer says, but here in Western Sweden... There's a conviction that the new gender-neutral introduction undermines the entire service. This is a traditionally conservative region. It says, uh, Mikhail Laugren will resist pressure from the church hierarchy to replace masculine terms such as Lord and he with less gender-specific language. So I don't know if this is a traditional interview, but it, go it keeps going back and forth between the journalist and then statements from... Uh, members of the uh, Swedish church, I guess. So Pastor Mikhail Laugren, I think, you don't play lightly with these things. You don't play lightly with the creed. You don't play lightly with the liturgy of the church. Being part of a tradition means that you come from somewhere. You have a history, and that forms you and makes you what you are. And if you lose contact with your roots, you run the risk of losing your own identity. And then it goes back to Malcolm Brabant or whatever it is. This from where the winds of change are blowing, Uppsala, north of Stockholm, the seat of the Swedish church. Archbishop, there's no way I'm pronouncing that, Antia Jacqueline? I have no idea. It, some of these might make uh, good Skyrim names, though. Uh, is the, prim the primate of the Swedish church. And I've heard that term before, that kind of archaic term for like for a certain kind of church leader. And uh, the irony is not lost on me. You are indeed a primate. Uh, the primate of the Swedish church and leader of more than 6 million registered Lutherans. And, it's, uh, and he's saying, we're not going to give up our tradition, but in the tradition, there are all these elements already present. Like Julian of Norwich in the 14th century said, as sure as God is our father, God is our mother. So, I mean, this is not something that's newly invented. It's part of our tradition. 
Then back to uh, Brabant, Sweden prides itself on being at the cutting edge of social change, and the desire to use gender-neutral terminology is much stronger here than it is in many other countries. In the past year, Sweden has introduced a gender-neutral personal pronoun as an alternative to he or she in certain circumstances. The church insists it won't go that far, but critics fear the new pronoun will be introduced in the future. The church has also said it won't force priests to drop the traditional language, although the primate has made it clear that the changes are preferable. That'll jump down a bit, and here's an interesting statement from uh, that archbishop or archbishop. God is beyond our human categories of gender. It's actually already in the prophet Isaiah in the 11th chapter. God says, I am God and not human or a man. God is beyond that, and we need to help to remind us of that, because due to the restrictions of our brains, we tend to think of God in very human categories. We are not worshiping political correctness. We are worshiping God, the creator of the universe. And so keep in mind, once again, that this is completely unscripted. But off the top of my head, uh, I'm going to say I think both sides of the uh, argument have some merit. Now, I'm a non-believer, but theoretically, for the sake of argument, let's say God does exist. Um, I'm not saying I know for certain whether there is or isn't a higher power, but uh, agnostic, atheist, uh, highly doubtful. Um, but for the sake of argument, I, I think there's definitely a certain logic to the idea that God would be beyond matter and physical, sexual characteristics like sex or gender. And then strangely enough, I think that could lead into a discussion of evolution. Let's say there is a higher power and it sparked the process of evolution and evolution was the means by which it brought forth its creation. Um, did this being know ahead of time that its end goal was a male and female human and if so, did it identify with one of those genders, even though it's beyond matter? Could it be the case that this hypothetical god identifies with a kind of male patriarchal disposition or something like that, you know? I mean, you could posit all sorts of hypotheticals, who knows? And if I remember correctly, I think if you go way back into, you know, go backwards through the Hebrew Bible, I think there are kind of quote-unquote gender-neutral terms for God, and yet there are other words or terms for God that are more traditionally masculine. And then you have to ask, well, how literally is that supposed to be taken? There are, of course, times in the Bible when God is explicitly referred to as um, the father or a father, and then in Christian tradition, of course, you know, we go back to the idea of the Trinity. And even before that, you know, we go into the Gospels and we're dealing with a son and father dynamic with the Trinity, the father, son, Holy Ghost. But in Christian theology or thought throughout the ages, I think it, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for certain theologians to posit that God was beyond gender or whatever. And here's a little something from uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, I know Wikipedia. Haven't had to say that in a while. And this section is entitled Grammatical Gender in the Bible. It says, uh, the first words of the Old Testament are Bereshbit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Remember, Elohim is that somewhat controversial or maybe not 
controversial to some, but I would say at least intriguing. Uh, An intriguing word when you look at its etymology, because it seems to imply plurality. Um, It seems to be a plural form of the word El. Like we have the word serif, and then the plural form of serif, you know, which is a type of angel, is seraphim. Um, You have a cherub, then you have cherubim. El, which is, uh, I think, a Canaanite word for for God or king or something like that. You have El, and then you have Elohim. Isn't there something in the Old Testament about, uh, and let us make man in our image? And there, I think there's a little bit of an argument. Is that meant to be taken as the royal we, or are we really talking about more than one entity here, you know? Um, but I've always found that fascinating. I love the word Elohim. I love pondering, you know, what's behind it. Yeah, so El... And there's forms of it in uh, Ugaritic, Phoenician, Hebrew, Classical, Syriac, uh, Arabic, Akkadian, uh, Northwest Semitic word meaning God or deity. Maybe uh, Baal or Baal is the word I'm thinking of that uh, literally means king. And it's one of those deities that later, you know, in the Bible takes on a kind of sinister reputation. You have Baal and Moloch, specific deities known as El include the supreme god of the Canaanite religion. Baal, properly Baal, was a title and honorific meaning lord in the Northwest Semitic language, came to be applied to gods. The Hebrew Bible, compiled and curated over a span of centuries, includes early use of the term in reference to God, known to them as Yahweh, generic use in reference to various Levantine deities, and finally pointed application towards Hadad, who was decried as a false god. The use was taken over into Christianity and Islam, sometimes under the opprobrious form Beelzebub in demonology. Yeah, so back to uh, you know gender, the gender of God in the Old Testament. So Bareshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created... The verb bara created agrees with a subject with a plural, non-gendered noun. Elohim is used to refer to both genders and is plural. It has been used to refer to both goddess in 1 Kings 11.33 and God 1 Kings 11.31. The masculine gender in Hebrew can be used for objects with no inherent gender as well as objects with masculine natural gender. And so it is widely used, attributing the masculine gender to most things. However, the noun used for the spirit of God in Genesis, Ruach, is distinctly feminine, as is the verb used to describe her activity during creation. The consistent use of feminine nouns and verbs to refer to the spirit of God in the Torah, as well as the rest of the Jewish scriptures, indicates that at least this aspect of Elohim was consistently perceived as feminine. It says, two of the most common phrases in the Tanakh are, Vayamer Elohim and Vayamer Yahweh, and God said. Again, the verb Vayamer, if I'm not butchering that, he said is masculine. It is never Vadimor. The is never Vadimer. Almost sounds like a Harry Potter villain. The feminine of the same verb form. The personal name of God, Yahweh, or this is the Tetragrammaton, you know. Y-H-W-H, is presented in Exodus 3 as if the Y, Hebrew Yod, is the masculine subjective prefix to the verb to be. In Psalms, God is referred to as Father, he shall cry unto me, thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. 
Some literary approaches to the Old Testament have argued that parallels between biblical stories and earlier Sumerian, Akkadian, and Canaanite creation myths show a matriarchal substratum that has been overlaid by a patriarchal approach. In the Bible, the earth is the feminine complement of God, the two combine to form man, who articulates their relationship, for example, in sacrifice. The New Testament also refers to the Holy Spirit in masculine terminology, most clearly in the Gospel of John. Yeah, so, I mean... I can see the argument that God is beyond gender and the Bible, you know, being this uh, basically this giant stitched together anthology that perhaps features this evolving concept of God. I mean, it seems to conflict to some degree. And in fairness to the to the authors, I suppose you could argue that God can have different aspects. There could be a feminine aspect to God, uh, Elohim. Well, I think Elohim can be male or female, so more specifically, Ruach. But at the same time, God could also be masculine. I, I don't know. But like as it does with many things, the Bible seems to kind of contradict itself a bit, although there prob probably are ways you can harmonize that stuff um, regarding God and gender. And at the same time, I could understand how people, according to church tradition— and even early Christian texts and some Hebrew texts would feel justified in arguing that God is traditionally supposed to be viewed as male. I don't know. I mean, other than the fact that as kind of an outsider, I find the subject absolutely fascinating. You know, I don't have a lot of skin in the game being a, a non-believer myself and being someone who was raised Christian but is no longer practicing. My guess is, though, that political correctness is playing some role here. Uh, I, I think it would be intellectually dishonest to say it wasn't. If you have uh, a place like Sweden, which is very progressive socially, and they go from emphasizing a kind of gender neutrality in society at large to also trying to apply that same type of thing to religion to Christianity, I think it would be disingenuous to try to argue that it has nothing to do with political correctness. That being said, do I think it, that there could be a positive aspect to such a change? Uh, or even a positive aspect to kind of applying some degree of gender neutrality to society at large? I think so. I mean, I'm someone who's spoken out fairly strongly against political correctness in the past on this show, even though admittedly I consider myself a left-leaning individual. I think there are inherent differences between men and women, uh, at least physiologically, you know. So I think it might be kind of a pipe dream that you might ever totally get rid of the sex or gender divide. But do I think it's a good thing to try to create a sense of equality among the genders. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good thing to promote a sense of equality or parity and to teach people from an early age to have a kind of universal respect for their fellow human beings and to acknowledge the fact that we're equal in a sense in our common humanity, despite gender or whatever. So I can recognize that there's some political correctness going on here for sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's all bad either. 
But I'm probably rambling at this point, so I guess uh, I'll call it a wrap. Thanks, everyone, for listening, as always. You know the drill, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. If you want to help the show monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that famous alliteration. Haven't said that in a while. And I think Podbean has some Patreon-esque type of uh, feature now for supporting podcasters. So I should look into that more. And of course, uh, you can also use Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month if you dig what I'm doing here. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, you know what I might do? Copyright claims be damned. I might close out the show with one of my favorite medieval Christmas tunes. I believe it's a song in honor of St. Nicholas, uh, but here we go. Intonant Hody by Anonymous Four.